I'm Andy Otto. It's the 10th of August, and this is Thought Press. Decades ago, few would get divorced, but times have changed. Today, the rate has increased, and one in every two marriages will end in divorce. People are getting married later due to careers and education, and because of that, more and more people are living together. Maura Jane Farrelly takes a look at this growing trend of cohabitating, the statistics and the reasons behind it. What does it mean to older folks? The space shuttle Discovery returns safely, and as we discuss that, we take a listen to a 1959 newsreel where the future of space was quite different. The price of oil is at an all-time high, and the ACLU has filed a lawsuit against New York, saying the random searches of subway passengers is unconstitutional. And finally, skip the trip to your doctor. You can now get a checkup online. I'm Andy Otto, and you're listening to Thought Press. I'm Andy Otto. Welcome to Thought Press, where it's news plus more, and where we provide you with stories and sounds of the world, making you think and find things you never knew you cared about. I wanted to thank those who have just joined us as listeners. We've had up to 100 listeners as of late and have had hits to our site from all over the world. If you love Thought Press, spread the word and give us your feedback. You can let us know what you think anytime by emailing us at thoughtpress at gmail.com and you can call our listener line 24 hours a day at 206-33-THINK. That's 206-338-4465. And don't forget about our website, thoughtpress.blogspot.com. Thanks again. Well, NASA's been in the news plenty, so here's some more. After 14 days in space... The scheduled Discovery shuttle return on Monday was scrapped because of inclement weather and low clouds in Florida. Tuesday, after several orbits around the Earth and the continued inclement Florida weather, Mission Control decided to land the shuttle at Edwards Air Force Base in California. The landing was successful. Congratulations on a truly spectacular test flight. Welcome home, friends. Thank you. Those are great words to hear. We're happy to be back, and we congratulate the whole team for a job well done. NASA Chief Michael Griffin says they will try to launch another shuttle to the space station in September, but there's no promises. Shuttle flights cannot be conducted according to a schedule. We're going to use the remaining shuttle flights to complete the building of the space station, but we will fly each shuttle mission when it is ready to go. Just two weeks ago, a piece of foam fell off the shuttle's external fuel tank on takeoff and damaged the heat tiles on the belly of the spacecraft, a problem that the astronauts repaired while in space. Many say it's time for a new spacecraft, and NASA is working on a new crew exploration vehicle that may be used by 2010 or later. What do you think about the future of space? Our feedback line is active now at 206-33-THINK. Your audio or comments may be used on the next podcast. While on the topic of space, we head back 46 years to 1959, August 10th to a newsreel long before man took a step into space or on the moon. It's when the Explorer 6 satellite was launched. Its nickname was the Paddle Wheel Satellite, and it was a great step into the future, bringing back pictures of the Earth and other readings. Explorer 
Mariner 6, the panel wheel satellite shown before launching. The vanes jutting from the two-foot sphere contain tiny cells to convert solar energy into power for the explorer's battery of radio equipment and instruments. Carried into orbit by an Air Force Thor Able rocket, the satellite will measure the Earth's radiation belts and magnetic field. And perhaps most impressive of all, we'll relay back crude pictures of the globe and its cloud cover from the vantage of outer space. Launching is flawless. Man's 14th space messenger to date goes into an elliptical path 150 miles from Earth at its closest, 26,000 miles out at its farthest point. The paddle wheel satellite will remain in this orbit at least a year, continually drawing electricity from the sun's light to power its unique eye in the sky, probing the mysteries of the cosmos. Well, you buy things online, you shop, you buy movie tickets online, you even get prescription drugs. But medical checkups online? Why waste time driving to the doctor when you can get an e-visit? David Welch reports. For most Americans, a visit to the doctor is a lengthy process. They may have to take time off from work, get to the clinic or medical office, then wait until the doctor is available before they can even begin explaining why they're there. But... Do patients really have to go through all that? Undoubtedly, 50 to 70% of the cases in primary care, the answer is no, they did not physically need to be there. Chuck Kylo heads a medical practice in Oregon that specializes in e-visits. Dr. Kylo says online consultations aren't much different from office visits. Patients with chronic ailments like hypertension or diabetes usually come to see him just to have their charts reviewed. Now, he uses email and electronic spreadsheets to monitor their blood pressure or insulin levels. We never want to be cavalier about the quality of care that we deliver. On the other hand, a lot of what we do in primary care can be done electronically or over the phone. Advocates of e-visits, like Jack Friedman, CEO of Providence Health Plan, say the technology allows everyone to benefit. Patients can get medical advice quickly, securely, and confidentially online, directly from their primary care physician. Jumping in your car, taking an hour and a half off of work, going to the doctor's office, waiting for 35, 40 minutes to see your primary care doctor for a seven and a half minute or eight minute visit isn't always the most productive way to get your primary care needs met. Providence Health Plan is one of a growing number of insurance companies that covers e-visits paying doctors the same amount they receive for traditional office visits. And without the small talk and patient hand-holding, e-visits saves time, which means doctors can take on more patients. Chuck Kylo points out online consultations can reach well beyond monitoring chronic ailments. He has many patients who use email for routine medical questions, and some who use digital cameras to take pictures of a rash or a bump and send them to his office for medical advice. I saw somebody who came in this morning. She had basically an allergic reaction around a Band-Aid that had been applied. Had she snapped a picture of this and shown it to me, I could have easily sort of told her over email, yeah, it is what we think it is. No reason for you to worry about battling through traffic and taking off work and coming in for me to tell you that it's likely an allergic reaction. This type of care concerns Monique Levy. She's a senior analyst with Jupiter Research, a consulting firm that helps clients evaluate the impact of new technologies on their business. It's hard to tell whether they're going to get all the information that they would be able to get from nonverbal cues or seeing the patient or you know monitoring and taking other types of vital signs. So 
there's a risk that they're not going to get a whole picture of what's going on with the patient. Miss Levy says this leaves doctors and insurers vulnerable to lawsuits if, for example, a treatment based on the partial picture proves harmful. That risk, along with the high cost of setting up an online practice, has kept most doctors and insurers out of the e-visit business. But patient interest is growing, which means virtual house calls could soon be just a click away. I'm David Welch in Portland, Oregon. Because of recent terrorist threats in Saudi Arabia, the cost of oil has risen to its highest level in 22 years. Possible surge in price may also be caused by the invasion of Iraq and general concerns for security of the oil supply. On Monday, the price for a barrel was $64. Since then, it is down a dollar. Last year, it was about $40 a barrel. This and terror threats come a week after the death of King Abdullah. The stability of the country is important to the sensitive oil market. Refineries in the United States have begun operating at full capacity to meet the demand of summer fill-ups. Your thoughts on the price of oil and gas? Shoot us an email, thoughtpress at gmail.com or call 206-338-4465. Do you think searching people on the subway is unconstitutional? The American Civil Liberties Union thinks so. This is after New York began performing random searches of passengers riding trains and buses. The ACLU's lawsuit, which it filed on behalf of five New York subway riders, claims that the new search policy violates the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which protects people against unwarranted searches and seizures. Christopher Dunn of New York's chapter of the ACLU says the police are not searching people randomly, that they are engaging in racial profiling. Random searches, by definition, even if that's the way they're taking place, are searches based on no suspicion whatsoever. That makes no sense as a security measure. And in our country, at least, we have a long tradition that the police do not get to search people about whom they have no suspicion of wrongdoing. The plaintiffs in the case claim the new search policy has placed unnecessary restrictions on their daily lives. City officials have said that they believe the searches meet all appropriate legal requirements, stressing that individuals do not have to submit to a search. They can just leave the station and not ride. Don Swarthout of the Christians Reviving America's Values Group. You know, the world has changed. And I understand that the ACLU would say that it's an invasion of privacy. Yes, it is. Uh, However, to me, the ACLU would just let that terrorist get on that uh, subway car in New York City uh, with a uh, a bomb strapped to his back, and the results would be at least the same as they were in London. Still, the ACLU denies 
that their actions are a threat to security. They say they plan to ask for an injunction to stop the searches while the lawsuit is in progress. This is a podcast of pondering. Have we stepped up security so much that our rights are being violated, even our privacy? Call or email. Our email and number again at the end of the show. This is a hot topic, divorce. It's often said that half of marriages will end that way, and that rate is twice what it was a few decades ago. Maura Jane Farrelly finds that people are not only getting married later, but they're cohabitating. The divorce rate in the United States is declining, according to a study conducted by researchers at Rutgers University. But one reason may be found in another statistic from the study. The number of Americans choosing to get married in the first place has been going down. The American divorce rate today is nearly twice what it was in 1960. The often quoted statistic is that about 50% of all American marriages will end in divorce. But since hitting a high point in the early 1980s, the divorce rate in this country has actually been going down, according to David Papineau, a sociology professor who directs the National Marriage Project at Rutgers University. Probably the biggest reason is that people are marrying at a later age. And this means essentially that you have fewer teen marriages, and teen marriages have by far the highest divorce rate. Today, the average American man is 27 years old when he gets married for the first time. Compare that to 30 years ago when the average was just 23. Most American women these days are around 25 years old when they finally walk down the aisle, but in 1970, the average was 20. David Papineau says Americans are postponing marriage so they can continue their educations and get started on their careers. That doesn't mean, though, that they're putting personal relationships on hold. If you postpone marriage for a long time, the question is, what do you do in the meantime? (laughs) And cohabitation is quickly uh, filling the bill. Cohabitation. It's a term that refers to the increasingly common practice in which a man and a woman who are romantically involved with one another but are not married live together as if they are. Between 1960 and 2004, the number of cohabiting couples in the United States increased by nearly 1,200 percent. About 9 percent of the men and women living together today are not married, and although that rate pales in comparison to some European countries, where the rate can be as high as 60 percent, it's still higher now than it's ever been before. Many cohabiting couples do eventually marry, but not all of them. Mary Bayless, for example, who resides in a suburb of Washington, D.C., says she probably won't ever marry the man she's been living with for the past three years. When we first started seeing each other, we were both going through divorces. He wanted to get married. I didn't. And then after we were both divorced and living together, I started talking about marriage, and he doesn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> so, And now we're kind of both at the same impasse that we just don't want to get married. And it's not about our feelings for each other. It's just about marriage, I think. Many of the couples who live together have experienced divorce on some level. Either they've been divorced themselves, like Mary Bayless, or else their parents separated. 
Professor David Papineau says the cohabitation rate is particularly high among people who were children in the late 1970s and early 1980s, when the U.S. divorce rate reached its peak. We're finding now that people, especially those who come from broken homes、uh, through divorce and so on, are gun shy of marriage, and they want to make sure they've found just the right person, and they're in no rush to. Uh, for example, have to go through a divorce themselves. David Papineau says cohabitation has become so commonplace that there's very little pressure these days for people to marry. But Mary Bayless says researchers shouldn't be fooled by the high cohabitation rates. She says there's still a lot of pressure. It's just subtle. I'm 50 years old. He's 47. I hate introducing him or talking about him, referring to him as my boyfriend. It sounds like so high school, and I hate all the other terms. You know,、uh, partner, companion. It sounds. It sounds like I'm gay.、Um, I just don't know what the right term is for him. So that that's part of it. Mary Bayless says she believes American society is more accepting of cohabitation among young adults because the assumption is that these people will eventually get married. That may be the case, but many young cohabiting couples may be facing a different kind of social judgment. According to the National Marriage Project, more than 40% of them have children. And polls show that about half of all Americans believe they should have exchanged wedding vows before starting a family. I'm Maura Farrelly. I'm Andy Otto, and you've been listening to Thought Press. You can follow up on any links or stories we mention on any of our shows at our website, thoughtpress.blogspot.com. Send us an email. Support us with a podcast alley vote on our site. Also, if you love Thought Press, you can help with a donation through our site. Don't forget, it's thoughtpress.blogspot.com. Call our listener line at two zero six thirty three think if you have something to say or would like to be on the show. That's two zero six three three eight. Forty-four sixty-five. Our audio is hosted by archive.org and select content is provided by Voice of America. Check out our website. Don't forget to drop us a vote. Thoughtpress.blogspot.com.